This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Yeah, hey, that's us. We're Leadership in Action. Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike Usim. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change. I'm in the studio with my good friend and colleague, Jeff Klein, executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, also here at the Wharton School. Our third host and good friend, Ann Greenhall, has the night off. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's a springtime day out there. Uh, is it ever. Which, uh, we, rejoicing we are after a cold two weeks. Jeff, let me tell you a couple things about our uh, coming speakers, and then I've got a question for you. Spontaneous it is, so be ready, Jeff. This is a cold call. All right, and if I don't like what you say, I can go? <laughs> no, you can throw it back at me. Oh, okay. I, I, but if, when you tell me about the program, yeah, if I'm like, eh. uh, Okay. Yeah. Then hey, to our listeners, if you don't hear my voice again. Exactly. Where, where is Jeff? Oh, okay. We, we, right. we got you. So... So, Jeff, we're going to begin tonight by talking to a professor at Dartmouth College, Sidney Finkelstein, uh, who has thought a lot about leadership strategy and governance. He's got a, um, a couple books out. We're going to be talking about leadership as the art of teaching with him. Second hour, our guests will be the co-authors of a book. Listen carefully to this title, One Day, One Night, Portraits of the South Pole. And I translate that title into meaning they were there for a full year because it's a six-month day and then a six-month night. We're going to hear how uh, these uh, two guests spent a year in the middle of Antarctica, right there at the South Pole, uh, in a huge dome that they had uh, had been put up for 50 other researchers. Imagine that for one year. be talking with them about uh, that kind of an arrangement to living in an extraordinary environment and what it takes Jeff, before we turn to our discussion with uh, Professor Finkelstein, quick question for you. Many people have been riveted this week by live television coverage of the chief executive officer of Facebook facing a barrage of questions uh, one day from the Senate and then the second day from the House of Representatives. Jeff, just to put you a little bit on the spot here, if you were the chief executive (laughs) – uh, without all that goes with it, but temporarily the chief executive of Facebook. Uh, you've been through this dialogue with the Senate, then with the House, a huge amount of international attention around questions of privacy and access to information on your 2 billion or so uh, registered users. If you were the chief executive, all that being said, what's next? Well, I think... I mean, the the interesting thing, I haven't been able to watch a lot of the testimony just as we've been in, in teaching requirements and, and other things here at, at Penn. But, you know, the the one thing that's fascinating is just how many people are paying attention, yeah. right? And while he's testifying in front of, you know, uh, Senate committees, now House committees, the whole world is really watching, Right. And and I think he's even noted a number of times that there are, um, you know, there are there are different preferences. There are different, you know, proclivities or biases around data and the expectations around it, um, depending on culture. Right. And is, you know, has has done some comparing to America's expectations around data and and what companies do with it versus maybe a, a more European orientation. And that, that's a challenging yeah. – to be able to carry that message, I think, is, um, is challenging knowing how many different interests maybe or different perspectives uh, are paying attention. Jeff, kind of reaching back into my uh, memory here, I can't think of a chief executive of a private company who has captivated or captured that much uh, worldwide attention, live television coverage through much of the day on many channels – maybe ever. So help yeah. us understand why there is such enormous interest in what the chief executive of Facebook has to say. Well, I mean, on <laughs> there's so many reasons, right? I mean, at, at one level, we're, 
we're um, still trying to understand data breaches and the way that uh, you know Cambridge Analytica, potentially other firms, got access to data, the way they used it, what influence that might have had on the way people are thinking on a broad number of topics, but most importantly, a presidential election, right? So there's yeah. kind of that category. There is this category which just says, you know, we are we are hurtling towards this new world where uh, the mi- our micro behaviors and our small preferences are indicating something about how we might want to be served. And, and you know, the, the number of people who understand that is far less than the number of people who do understand. It. Wait, did I say that right? Uh, <laughs> right. Not many people understand that. Got, got the gist. Right. Yep. And so there, there's this educational process that is going on. And then, you know, I think there is also the um, – the public showcase part of it, right? Which is, this is possibly the most famous CEO in the world, testifying for a number of days in front of, um, in front of these committees, and he's a CEO who has been accused of being, you know, more aloof, more detached from mm-hmm. the public view mm-hmm. than, you know, many of the. Um, you know, quote unquote, famous CEOs of the past decades. So I think you roll all those things up into one, and yeah, it becomes interesting on a number of different levels. Does it ever? And I think it's uh, picking up on what you've said there. It's testament to a point of, with an implication here. Most of us are never going to be testifying in Congress, regardless of what we do. And even those that run companies or community centers or hospitals or probably not be in quite the same shoes. Having said that, the nature of organizations today is we are we're private, we serve clients, we're a private university, we teach students, but also we're a little bit public at the same time. Absolutely. And it does put a premium on the ability to articulate the message, explain the strategy to the outside, and I think that's what uh, Mr. Zuckerberg has been doing for a couple days. Yeah, well, and Mike, I would actually I'd link it back to some of what you've written about in books like The Leader's Checklist. I mean, there, uh, I, I think that Mark Zuckerberg has done an effective job of communicating information, uh, I think, where where he seems to be trying, but I think the, the more difficult terrain for him is around conveying character, conveying some of the emotions that both he and, you know, other executives at Facebook are are likely experiencing um, and, you know, conveying that sense of contrition as well for some of the breaches that have happened. And, you know, I I think that's um, that's what a lot of the commentary seems to center around right now. It does indeed. Jeff, let's hold that thought for the moment. I do want to bring on a guest who's actually thought quite a bit about this topic as well. Uh, we have well, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> more than you or me. Uh, going to bring on the show a Dartmouth professor, Sidney Finkelstein. Sidney, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Mike. Good to be on with you. Really good to have you. And uh, I said briefly that you're with the faculty there at, uh, at Dartmouth College up in Hanover, New Hampshire. Really great to have you. You've been at the business school for quite some time. You've written widely on leadership, on strategy, and governance. And I'm going to begin, Sydney, with uh, a title of a recent article. It really caught my attention. The best leaders are great teachers. So let's just pick up an ad, and then Jeff and I will get into a dialogue with you on many topics in and around this, including we'll maybe come back to Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. Sydney, the best leaders are great teachers. Yeah, uh, you know, I've uh, um, I spent a lot of time talking to different leaders and working with some and, and interviewing others, and uh, uh, it's just kind of, it's just come up time and time again that um, the best leaders really are. I mean, they're really teachers. They're teaching, and this is one-on-one teaching members of their team. Uh, we're not necessarily talking about CEOs or only CEOs. You could think about any manager at any stage in a company. Anyone has other people that report to her or to him. Uh, to what extent are you conveying the messages you want to convey? What are you teaching? How are you teaching? Are you spending time to do that? And I found, I found that uh, it turns out to be an essential skill, one that pretty much anyone could do if they really put their, put their mind to it. And, and, what, and, and the net result is that not only do people on your team really understand what you're trying to get at and end up being higher performers, but you're actually um, helping them, accelerating their own careers at the same time because you're providing this, this, this kind of one-on-one teaching uh, on, a, uh, on a regular basis. 
So, um, yeah, so it, it seems great. to be a big differentiator. So let me, let me uh, work with you to break it down a bit for our listeners. We all want to be teachers uh, because we want to simply put, want to help other people, maybe in my case, avoid the mistakes I've made, but uh, more generally, just get on with life in the best possible way. Uh, but to put the affirmative twist on that, the best leaders are not only great teachers, I think you say implicitly they have to be great teachers. So pick up on that if you would. Yeah, uh, I think they, uh, I, I really do think they have to be, and I certainly I've, I've mm. seen it. And the question is, well, what exactly are you, are you teaching? It's not, uh, you know, it's not like being a professor in university. It's extremely applied to exactly what the issues and the, and the, and the challenges are that, uh, that you as a leader might be facing and certainly that team members might be, might be facing. I mean, I found examples of, um, you know, people like, uh, like Ralph Lauren teaching, um, I call it points of craft, teaching people on his team how to think about merchandising. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of, kind of important. Uh, um, uh, Saul Price, who used to, you know, create Price Club, and in some ways he's the godfather of the whole industry. You know, the Costco uh, founder and CEO, Jim Senegal, worked for him for years. And, and he, every single day, um, Jim would, would talk about how, when he worked for Saul Price, that he would be... Uh, He'd be tested. He'd be asked about uh, um, about how the work was going, how how you set up the stores, how you think about customers, and he would show he would show him. He would talk to him about that. So it's almost like doing your job and at the same time making sure that the people around you see how you're doing that job, so they get a little bit of insight into that and gain, uh, especially if they're if, if they're capable of it, if they're open to it, they gain a, a I think a deeper sense of what it takes to be successful. Sydney, before I pass the baton over to my friend in the room here, Jeff Klein, I just want to remind listeners, why don't you join the dialogue here? Give us a call, 844-942-7866. Sydney, I'm really happy to talk with you tonight. And, um, you know, the, this this premise that Mike has introduced, well, that you've introduced and that Mike's referenced, which is around leaders being teachers, um, you know, hit, hits really close to home for me, having benefited from the teaching of a number of leaders uh, within my first career, which was on the corporate side, um, the you know I, I I think this question is probably an extension of what you were talking about with Mike, um, but I, implied in being a great teacher is that uh, these leaders are also great learners, and and so could you talk a little bit about what what you've observed, what you've discussed with them about how they're learning from the you know, whether it's the set of experiences they have or the set of mentors and colleagues, et cetera, like what's really been key for, for their own learning? Right. You know, it's, uh, you bring up a great point because uh, the best teachers, in my experience, are also the, uh, the most curious and, and, mm. and are, as a result, the best, the best learners. They love to learn. Larry Ellison used to, you know, tough, tough guy Larry Ellison from, from Oracle. When someone on his team would, would, would introduce a different way of thinking about something, a new idea, he would push you. He would challenge you. He would uh, he would make sure that you thought this out really, really well. But he would just love it. It would be, you know, he'd, he'd never be more happy almost than, than than when he was learning something something new. And I think that mindset, especially today, when you think about, you know, we're entering the age of well, not entering, we're in the age of uh, of artificial intelligence and robotics and all kinds of other things. And if if a manager if a leader is not a great learner, I don't know how you're going to be able to survive because the knowledge base you have is, is depreciating at such a such a fast rate that it's the ability to kind of figure out where to get answers, to mm-hmm. continually learn, to know who to tap into. It seems to me that's going to be an even bigger differentiator moving forward. Uh, that um, thanks for that. I, I appreciate it, and I certainly appreciate the way you, you've highlighted curiosity. Um, uh, are there other tangible steps that leaders can take to be Great learners. So um, uh, I think that there are probably, you know, I said curiosity, and you cited that, and I, I talked about the two C's: curiosity and courage. Mm. Uh, because mm-hmm. if you want to be a learner, there's a level of vulnerability required. You have to actually be willing and able to say um, that you don't know, uh, that you're open to a different, uh, that you're a different, that you're open to a different point of view. You know, so many people in the HR world and the headhunters, they talk about agility. It's kind of a buzzword. 
Uh, actually, it's number two behind disruption, as far as I can tell. That's in the league of its own. <laughs> Disruptive That's agility is what I'm hearing, huh? Oh, well, there you go. Dis- <laughs> we put disruption and agility in the same word, and then you, then you, then you got to patent that one. Uh, <laughs> and, and and but there's something to it, right? Why is everybody talking about it? It's because there's something to it. Every organization, every team, every company is finding themselves under assault. Uh, industries are changing. Amazon is competing, no matter what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have to be able to adapt to to adjust, and you have to be willing to say, you know, I, I don't know. You have to be open-minded. You have to be um, – the, be, the best learners are going to ask a lot of questions at, at, the, same, uh, at the same time. And, and I think um, you talk about different skill sets. Another kind of closely related to this idea is around feedback. It's not news that people um, get better when they have uh, – when they, when they get feedback. I think there's been a um, – big movement in corporate America towards no longer relying only on the annual performance review and looking to come up with different ways to provide feedback on a much more regular basis. But there's, there's really two parts of to, to feedback, right? One is, is, is receiving the feedback as a, as a manager, uh, as a boss, as a learner. Um, and then number two is what you do with that feedback and how you react to it, because some of that feedback could be negative feedback. In fact, it almost certainly will be when people are being honest. And the question then becomes, well, are you, are you open to it? Do you, mm-hmm. want to, do, you, do you want to actually learn? Do you want to, are you able to say, you know what, there is something there, as opposed to the very common reaction that, you know, this is all about human nature when you get right down to it, the very common reaction of, of you know, uh, well, you're wrong, you know, or that wasn't my fault, or there's nothing I could have done about that. Or, or putting your head in the sand and not wanting to, not wanting to really think through what the implications are of that feedback. So, uh, I, I call that, you know, a human skill. I mm-hmm. think people live happier, more successful lives if they're open to learning, if they're open to feedback. And certainly, when you get into any organizational setting, uh, it's just going to be very hard to, uh, I think, uh, be able to to be a, a successful and ongoing success unless you can. You can really open yourself. Sydney, I'm going to remind our listeners that they and you and we are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm with my good friend in the studio, Jeff Klein. And we are speaking with Dartmouth professor Sidney Finkelstein. And I've got a couple of questions to pick up on, but let me just have Jeff uh, finish off here. Jeff. Well, Sydney, the maybe the the next the next extension of this um, conversation we're having is, all right. If I'm a learner, and and I know we could talk a lot more about the the process of learning, and uh, you know, for for leaders, but maybe rather than do that right now, what has been in in your experience and in your observation, uh, what's been really important for leaders? Who are curious? Who are courageous? Who are you know seeking feedback, being vulnerable, being able to translate that into teaching skills? Hmm. Well, it's uh, it's almost like two sides of the same coin when you when you think about it, right? Uh, if you're if you're a learner, all you got to do is and, and have some of the characteristics that uh, or skill sets that we just uh, just have been talking about. Then you turn it on you turn on its head and say, okay. Well, what would make it more effective uh, for me to be open to, to learning? And let me apply those ideas to my to my own to my own team to be an effective teacher. And when we when we kind of looked at that in our in uh, in the research, we we, we saw a bunch of uh, a bunch of techniques from being very very customized, which I think is under. This is something that you know we could talk at, at length about. But uh, uh, the point I want to make about customized instruction and customized teaching is. Every single person on our teams, they're different. They're, they're yeah. different personality, different style, different everything. And we live in in, in almost a one-size-fits-all assumption. I, I, I think uh, I'm going to say our industry, if you will, uh, I'll call it the leadership industry, is partially to blame for this. And what I, what I mean by that, by that is um, there are so many assessments and, and analyses that we sometimes do with, uh, with leaders and um, and you know many of them are based on, on solid research. Not that, that those are bad things, but they tell you 
what type of leader you are. People want to know that. And you discover you're an emergent leader, you're a directed leader, you're a relationship-oriented leader. And then we also tell everyone as a leader to be authentic, to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, you combine those two things together and you say, well, I'm, I'm a directed leader. That's who I am. I've got to be authentic. I've got to be real. I can't pretend I'm something else. Therefore, that's who I'm going to be. And that's the opposite to customization. That's starting with what you want to be and everyone around you, meaning your team, they've got to adapt to you. Yeah. And, and, and I it just compare that to how modern business thinks about uh, how you deal with customers. You know, we don't tell customers, maybe Steve Jobs did for a while, but no, nobody else. You don't tell customers what they have to do. We, we customize, we, we, um, we come up with exactly what, uh, what we think they, they're going to need. And they're going to tell us that. You can think about all the, all the algorithms that are out there about what books to read that Amazon started on, and everyone has different versions of that. But when it comes to managing people, we're kind of in the dark ages when it comes to this particular point around customization. It's, it's a one-size-fits-all. You've got to do what I tell you to do. You've got to, you've got to adapt to my style because that's who I am. And I always wonder, what would happen if we started to teach or treat our team members, our employees, the same way we treat our best customers? That would be quite a revolution in management if we did that. Uh, Sydney, let's uh, stay on that for a few more minutes and break down, as you do in your article that I mentioned a few minutes back, what people actually do teach. And you've got three phrases. I'm going to mention them here on the air just to get us going. Uh, You call them buckets. Uh, They teach professionalism, points of craft, and life lessons. And if I can have you anchor this in a a really interesting example you offer up in your writing, and that is of a very famous Indian executive named, um, first two initials, K.V. Kamath, who built one of India's largest non-state-owned banks. And you say that he developed talent like few others out there by teaching in these three areas. So if you could pick up on that and just say a little bit about those three areas and maybe illustrate it with what you've seen in K.V. Kamath at what is called ICICI Bank. Yes, we had quite a, quite a story, ICICI Bank, and the number of, of, uh, of people that worked for Mr. Kamath and, and how many of them have become, um, even today, among the most uh, important people in the banking and financial services sector in, uh, in India. Uh, so uh, uh, professionalism is certainly one big part of what, uh, what we saw people, uh, people teach and in uh, the case of, um, of, of, of Kamath, he, um, he would really uh, talk about how, uh, how he mentored people, how he, how he interacted with people. Um, he, tried to, um, um, he tried to do this, and several of the other people I interviewed or learned about um, or researched uh, did something quite, quite similar, which is trying to find that balance between um, providing um, a, a guidance uh, constructive guidance, uh, feedback, and at the same time, letting people, giving people an opportunity to kind of figure things out for themselves. It's, it's kind of a yin and a yang because um, when people spend, when, when people have an opportunity to try to solve the problem on their own, um, they, uh, they very often learn, learn a tremendous amount. On the other hand, you know, you're in business and you can't have people struggling forever. Uh, and, and so, but the problem is the opposite. When you tell them just do this and uh, get get the job done, they're not going to develop mm-hmm. uh, very much as well. And that limits actually what you're as a leader limits your upside because you've got to spend all your time telling everybody else what they need to do. And I think we know from tons of research uh, that uh, when you have to tell people what to do, you don't get 100% buy-in. Yeah, um, totally. It's not the same as being part of it. So, so professionalism certainly was uh, was part of it. Uh, points of craft. I, I actually referenced, I think, that term earlier when I said, you know, Ralph Lauren was talking about merchandising with his people, mm-hmm. people all about that, and Saul Price with, uh, you know, uh, Jim Senegal from Costco. Uh, in the case of uh, in the case of, uh, of of Kamath, it was truly understanding the banking the banking industry. It was understanding financial transactions. It was understanding why does somebody put money into a bank? What are mm-hmm. they looking for? Uh, what is this? Uh, let's call them the retail customer, and they're looking for. Uh, and what do they? Uh, what do they require? They require trust. The whole banking industry, uh, actually, I'd say all of financial services, when you get right down to it, but banking in particular, is based on trust. 
And that was the message that uh, Kamath would share with his, mm-hmm. uh, with his, with his people. Uh, and if trust breaks down, then banking breaks down, and the business breaks down. And um, and then life lessons, uh, which is sounds a little bit odd, you know. Life lessons is that your job as a manager to do that. And uh, remarkably, I found uh, just how how appreciated uh, that was uh, by so many of the subordinates, so many of the team members of a uh, bunch of people that I that I um, uh, that I studied. Uh, and, and for, for Kamath, uh, it, it was about honesty. It was uh, about the highest level of, of integrity. Uh, the types of things that you'd like to think that bankers are all about, well, th- that's what mm-hmm. Kamath was all about. And he would, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, you work, you, you work in banking, you work for someone like Kamath, the idea that integrity is important is not exactly news, except that we have, unfortunately, many examples in many companies over time where that hasn't been the case. And so you do need to reinforce the, the culture you want and the values that you really care about. And that's, that's what I meant uh, by, by life lessons. All, all three of those uh, buckets or categories or things that they, that they were teaching, that, that, that these leaders were teaching, come up as a good example of it. Sydney, we've got about 60 seconds to go before we're going to take a, a bit of a station break here. A question on how deep this teaching should extend or how wide it should extend, a better way to put it. And um, you well know, and we have, uh, we've known also, Chanda Kochar, who is now his successor at ICICI Bank. He, of course, was mentored by her. He was a teacher of her. But as I recall, he actually coached and mentored many, many others in ICICI. Mm-hmm. And I guess what... Well, <laughs> I have to finish that with a question mark then. Yeah. Uh, uh, is in that sense, um, I think the implicit advocation here is uh, get on with it, make sure that it happens, and don't limit it to a couple favorite folks close in. Is that a way to capture the spirit of what you're saying? You know, um, what I did find is that when there was when there were team members that really didn't want to be taught, that were not really. Uh, at the edge of their seat on all, all of this, they would uh, these leaders would spend less time less time with them. Hmm. Um, they it would be a process of slow excommunication, and that would be of course the end of their opportunities in yeah. that business. Uh, so you you got to you got to meet you, you got to meet your boss more than halfway. One would think, and if your boss wants to teach you something, what a great what a fantastic opportunity to to, to be part totally. of that. You totally. think everybody would, but not always. All right, Sydney, I'm going to have you hold that thought. I want everybody to stay with us. We're going to come back in just a couple minutes here and continue our dialogue with Sydney Finkelstein on why the best leaders are great teachers. And a question I'm going to throw back at you, Sydney, when we come back in the air, let's turn that upside down. Are the best teachers also great leaders? So stick around, everybody. This is Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111, Leadership in Action. Welcome back, everybody. Leadership in Action. That is us. Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I am your host, Mike Usain. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Jeff Klein, and we are in conversation with Sidney Finkelstein, the Stephen Roth Professor of Management at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. He's also the director of Tuck Center for Leadership, and we began for listeners just coming in with reference to a recent article that Sydney published with a great title, The Best Leaders Are Great Teachers. We've been talking about how people who are making a difference in the world help that difference. Um, they leverage that difference in the world by bringing other people into the agenda and helping them become great at leading whatever it is as well. But Sydney, just before the break, I did turn that title upside down and... Um, let me ask the question again: Are best teachers great leaders? Yeah, so it's uh, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and I and I think the an- the short answer is yes, and I'll tell you why why I think so. Um, the truth is that teaching is one of the the absolute best ways to develop talent, and developing talent has got to be one of the most important mm-hmm. things any leader should do. You know, in, in fact, in my in my research on um, these leaders that I call super bosses. Uh, leaders that help generate, the leaders that, that create other leaders. That uh, These are people that generate and regenerate talent really on a continuous basis. And so teaching is one of the most important things you can do as a leader to try to, uh, to, help, to help make this happen. So if leadership 
is uh, a big part of leadership is making sure you have the absolute best people possible and you're generating and regenerating that. You're accelerating people's capability set. Then teaching is a great method to, uh, to do it. And, you know, the other point about this is, uh, and, I, and I talk a little bit about this in the, um, in the article, uh, teaching also mm. occurs by modeling or osmosis, uh, watching your boss or watching your boss's boss. And so I think um, reinforcing values and cracking a compelling vision, motivating and energizing, all these things that we know are key elements of what makes for an effective or an effective leader. These could be, these could be learned in part by paying attention. And I think if, a, if the smart manager is going to be alert to that and, and the smart manager is going to say, I can actually convey what I, what I, what I care about and be more effective as a leader by, by, by conveying those types of messages to the people around them. So uh, I, I, think, uh, I think on at least two dimensions, uh, I, could, uh, I really do think that uh, um, leaders, uh, leaders are, teachers are the, also the best, uh, the best leaders. Sydney, I, um, thinking about a number of conversations that, you know, I would tend to have with our MBA students or executive MBA students or perhaps with managers who are uh, transitioning into, you know, greater responsibility who, who come here to Wharton for a week. And a lot of, um, not a, well, some of the conversation that we're having with them are about the uh, the relationships which are going to be important for them, you know, throughout their throughout their career, and and so there there's this sort of constellation of roles that um, that the literature starts to suggest any rising leader would want to cultivate. You know, we have um, coaches, we have mentors, we talk about sponsors with organizations and within organizations. And, and here we're kind of adding, um, adding the leader as teacher, right? Cultivate, mm -hmm. cultivate mm -hmm. teachers. So could you just kind of help us understand, you know, if, if you think about these roles, um, how would you how would you prioritize them or how would you differentiate them? Um, and, and what steps can a listener take um, to make sure they have the right resources in place for both short-term and, and long-term growth? Yeah, so, you, you know, those are uh, very common words and there's no question that there is some overlap among, amongst all of these different concepts. But yeah. the, 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 the teaching idea, I think, is is sufficiently different to that that we should be we probably should be paying more attention to it so take uh mentorship to start um people in a company will have uh, may have different types of mentors for different purposes some companies will assign a mentor right and that mentor may not be anyone you're working with in fact it would be unusual i think for uh, for a mentor to be assigned who happens to be your your boss or even your boss's boss and uh, and so there's a there's a lot of value there. Of course, there's a, there's a lot you can learn, and you want those mentors. But that's not the same. Um, that's just not that's that's not this. That's not going to be your your direct boss in most in most uh, in most instances. Coaches, of course, are going to be either internal or external, driven by um, uh, some of the HR folks within a, within an organization, or depending on your company and the level you're at, might be it might be an outside uh, might be an outside person. Uh, I think the word you mentioned sponsor, I think sponsor and teacher are probably the closest, in fact, because what differentiates, first of all, I'll say what differentiates the teacher from, say, the mentor, the, um, the coach, is that we're talking about one-on-one -on -one teaching, and we're talking about it between your boss and you yourself. And that's a very particular uh, type of relationship. It's teaching that is not done independent of your orientation towards hitting your numbers or your task or your assignment it's actually done in conjunction with that it reinforces it's actually meant to help you perform more effectively because everybody wins in that in that regard um the sponsorship part is very interesting because the the, the best leaders uh, that uh, that i looked at the, the super boss leaders uh, really are sponsors uh, for, hmm. for for people on their team um, you don't have to have your boss a sponsor. It doesn't have to be the only one. Sometimes it's you know a couple of levels up. But wouldn't it be good if your direct boss, the person you work with most closely, is a sponsor in the sense that that she is looking for opportunities for you to advance your your career and will try to help create some of those things. Uh, and so again, you know, 
there's some overlap among amongst these things, but I'd say that the the, the teaching one from all of those uh, all mm-hmm. those terms is the one we we probably don't I don't think we spend enough time enough time on it, and I think we might not even value enough or even measure or assess whether a boss is a is a uh, an effective teacher because it's a yeah. it's a really powerful role. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I appreciated your point about, you know, bosses, you know, not not only teaching in, in a kind of direct way, but also modeling the right kinds of behaviors. Right. And you can you can pick a lot up as as the the learner um, just by observing the kinds of behaviors that that, you know, your boss might use to be successful. If you find yourself, and you know, maybe for our listeners out there who are who are thinking, "Wow, I, I would love to figure out how to shift my relationship with my boss to one that would include more one-on-one teaching," have you uh, have you encountered strategies that that individuals can take to try and encourage more of that from their direct supervisors? Yeah, it, it, it's tough because the truth is there are going to be some people that are just they're they're so goal oriented. And short-term goal-oriented that they don't, in my view, don't truly understand that the more you teach others, the more you help people in your team get better, the more you're going to get better. I mean, mm-hmm. is there a situation where that mm-hmm. wouldn't be the case? It's kind of common sense, except that it's not as common as we'd as we'd like. So, what could you do uh, about that? Uh, I always, uh, I, 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 I always encourage people to, uh, in their conversations with their boss, ask questions like, um, uh, "What would be the, the best thing that I can possibly do for you um, how can I um, how, how can I uh, what, what, what are some of the challenges that I could potentially help you on all of these are meant I mean there's other ways to phrase it obviously but they're all meant to try to um, identify and understand what role can I play that will help my boss uh, be even more successful and it turns out that if you're even a little bit good at that you will have your boss's ear and then it becomes a lot easier to start to ask questions about why did you do this or how did you think about this or if you were in my shoes, how would you think about it? You can't spend all your time asking those questions if you don't have that relationship. And you mentioned that word right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You don't have that relationship with your with your boss. So you've got to manage that very effectively. And in my experience, the best way to build a strong relationship with your boss is becoming mm-hmm. is to become indispensable. And all of a sudden, there's plenty of time that he or she's going to have for you. Super, and and let me ask one one more question. Well, I, I have like thirty more questions, but I will let <laughs> I will let Mike back mm-hmm. into the conversation here. Um, I, I'm wondering, in your experience, it is as you've studied the role of leader as teacher, if you see ripple effects, um, or or maybe <clears throat> to ask it a little differently, under under what <clears throat> conditions might you see ripple effects that that actually start to change or or reinforce organizational culture to make teaching more of a priority. Right, right. It's a uh, it's a fabulous question, and I've been, I've been very interested in seeing that because, you know, while I like the idea of any any leader, any manager being a teacher to the people on on our team, I, I like it even more if that becomes part of the culture of how the organization works. Right. So, uh, so there are a couple of things. Um, the simple one, I suppose, is if you work for somebody like that. You work for someone that really wants to help you get better and is, and is doing some of these things around teaching that we've been talking about, um, and, and, and it's beneficial, I think there's a higher probability that you will, you will want to engage in some of the same types of behaviors and actions around teaching mm-hmm. with people on, on your team. I think that's common sense. I think you'll see it, and I won't say you know, there's always some attrition rate as you go through the generations on these things, but I think you're more likely to, to see that. And the, the second thing is a bit of a broader point about that, but um, um, every organization has uh, has got to change, has got to adapt. We'll go back to the, the agility uh, conversation we had a bit earlier, uh, and uh, uh, and the problem is that so 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 much of the time people we make an assumption, and by we I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm talking really about managers, leaders, CEOs in many cases that people don't want to change. Uh, I mean, that's why we have these common terms like, you know, if you want to change, you got to create a sense of urgency or, 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 or build a burning platform, you know, these common metaphors. And, and they're all based on this assumption people don't want to change. And, and I think it's a little bit, a little bit crazy because um, 
why is it that people don't want to change? Is it automatically the case? Is that a given? And I think when when you start to create this this kind of cultural thing that we're we're talking about, where you're you really are a teacher and you're backing it up, and and you could even uh, extend it to the, another word you used earlier, sponsor. Mm-hmm. When you're looking for opportunities for people on your team, uh, I, I think that's particularly uh, powerful. You 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 start to help people get get better, and and the status quo is not good enough. We were talking about learning. What does a great learner do? A learner is open to learning new things. Is open to feedback. Um, wants to get better. Has some degree mm-hmm. of vulnerability. These are the things that it takes to create a change-oriented culture. And so that I mean, it's going to take a little mm-hmm. bit longer. And I don't think one one leader all by herself is going to be able to do it. But I think over over time, I, uh, when when this starts to to kind of get shared in, in an organization, it could really start to pay off in a in a powerful way. And I would say it's almost essential now in the economy that we operate in, with a degree of change, disruption, and all those other wonderful things. You got to be able to 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 enhance cultures that make them more change oriented. Sydney, thank you on that. I'm just going to remind listeners, I'm Mike Hussein. I'm here with Jeff Klein. This is Leadership in Action. And we are in dialogue with Dartmouth professor Sidney Finkelstein about his work on management and leadership. If you've got a question or like to make a comment, give us a call, 1-844-942-7866. And Sydney, with um, about 10, 12 minutes yet to go, I do want to move uh, a little bit back in your career, and I know you still actively think about what I'm about to mention. You wrote a book. It's got a great title, Why Smart Executives Fail. And then another book, Super Bosses, subtitle, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. Maybe another subtitle, What Super Bosses and How They Succeed. So picking up on why smart executives sometimes fail and why super bosses do seem to get it right, what do you think the difference is? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time trying to answer that question. I'll tell you why. Uh, when I wrote Why Smart Executives Fail, it is about, it was during the era of, uh, or just past the era of Enron, WorldCom, and some of these really giant, you know, disasters. And, and I wanted to understand how it was that senior leaders in these organizations that had this tremendous track record of success, how everything fell, fell off the map. And, and that's what the book is, is, is mm-hmm. all about. And, um, um, as I uh, started talking about that and working with companies on you know, workshops and, and, and the rest, um, the, the, the number one question um, that, that came up really was around, well, what, what can we do to make sure we're not going to be in your sequel? Something like that, right? And uh, I, there, was, there was no sequel, but uh, uh, I, uh, I came to realize actually just how uh, fundamental, how uh, important uh, it is to, and I use this phrase, I think, I think earlier in response to one of your questions, uh, uh, the way to survive and thrive as an organization for any length of time is, is when your leaders are able to generate and regenerate talent on, on a continuous basis. Because, you know, people come and go, but the world changes and you need to keep coming up with, with, great, uh, with great people. And it's that talent machine and the ability to do that. And that's what led me to um, super bosses. Uh, and, and it's specifically... You know what? What uh, can I find? People that have this tremendous track record of generating and regenerating talent, and 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 I did through my research. People like you know Ralph Lauren, who I mentioned in fashion, Alice Waters in the food industry. She's you know Chef Penny's restaurant. Um, uh, Lauren Michaels in in comedy. Larry Ellison in in tech. Um, Tommy Frist in healthcare. And and the real question was, what do they have in common? What do they actually do? Mm. Not who they are, because. You, know, you can't teach personality very easily, as you all, you both know, uh, but you could teach behaviors, actions that make a difference. And that's what that, um, hmm. that entire study was based on. And teaching turned out to be not the only thing, but a very, very big part, uh, a very big part uh, uh, of it. And if I could say one, one more thing about you know, the, the two sides of this, one of the things I, um, I came up against uh, or I discovered as I was doing the Superboss research is that a number of these people were very high ego, very powerful people. And certainly the why smart executives fail leaders were off the charts ego driven. And I was thinking, you know, well, what, how could this be? What's the difference? And, um, and you dig into it and you keep talking to people. And eventually the, the thing that in retrospect seems like really kind of straightforward, I, 
I discovered, if you will, and that is that the why, why smart executives fail leaders when um, their, their philosophy was that they were the only ones that were important. Mm -hmm. Their team, the purpose of their teams was only to help them be more successful. They could not care less about anything about their, their teams, and they were the ones that were going to be blamed if something went wrong. Super boss leaders had just, in many, in many cases, just as much self-confidence. But really critically, what they understood is that to win, to be successful, we must have the world's best talent. We must have the world's greatest teams. And so <clears> the <throat> talent around them, the teams around them, became the key thing in that they understood to be successful. Therefore, if teams are so important, then of course, then of course you're going to be all about generating and regenerating talent. Uh, you'll be about teaching. You'll be about opportunity creation and many, many other things. That was really the the, the big, big difference. Almost a a, hmm. a mind shift. Uh, uh, yeah, mind shift that in, in the importance of of the team and the people around you. Sydney, as you um, as as you take that kind of a mindset and and now forecast it out. Um, over the next decade, you know, what are some of the trends that you see within the management, uh, uh, especially of these larger networked organizations, um, but but even you know, kind of broadly, that you think will define the smart executive or the the super boss in the future? Yeah, well, it's uh, I'm not great at crystal crystal ball work, but some things are already. Happening, so we yeah. feel a little, you feel a bit more confident about about that. Um, uh, I, I think about it as a as a, really a yin and a yang, combining opposites. I think tremendous confidence is absolutely a prerequisite for success as a leader, and I think humility is a prerequisite for success as a leader. Many people don't consider those uh, going together. You're either very confident or you're humble. Well, why can't you be confident and humble? At the same time, and I and I certainly have found that found that to be the case. Uh, another example, uh, again, of one of uh, kind of these opposites. Uh, the super boss leaders had a very powerful vision that they truly believed in, and they actually were rather uncompromising uh, in in that vision. They 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 believed in what they believed in. That you know, Ralph Lauren had a concept around what clothing would be and Alice Waters had a concept about you know farm to table local sourcing organic food and all the rest and they were not mm. going to compromise on that which generally doesn't sound like a great thing until you look at the other side which is as long as you if you if, if, if we work for one of these people if we work for Alice we work for Ralph um, then we have to buy into their vision but as long as we did they wanted to know everything we had. They wanted, they wanted us, they gave us a seat at the table. They wanted us to have the ability, the openness to, to come up with ideas, to experiment, to, 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 to be creative, to be innovative, uh, to be curious. And, and they welcomed it. They were not afraid of it. They didn't think that they had all the answers. That was a, a, one of the why smart executives fail traits, in fact, of these leaders. They really did think they had all the answers. And, and, uh, and I think, um, um, the super boss leaders are the opposite in that regard. And I think that's going to be another really, really critical, um, mm. call it capability, if you will, or a dual capability. You know, uh, the job of vision is not the job of the CEO alone. I think anyone who has any, uh, has any people that are working with you, for you, you've you got to give people a, a, true, a truly meaningful experience about what they're trying to do. And, and, and I would say you want to drill down into in, into what your vision is, even as a first line, a first line manager, it won't be inconsistent with the overall vision of the, of the organization, of course. But you still have to be able to translate it. And then you want to say, you know, I want, I want everyone on my team, I want everyone here to be able to contribute to that, to add something that I don't have myself. So there's more I could say, but those are a couple of examples. Sydney, we've got about two minutes to go, and let's take some of these really interesting thoughts and apply it to the topic that Jeff and I began to talk at the uh, top of the hour as we got going, and that is the fact that the <laughs> Facebook uh, the folks at the top are very much in the spotlight. And in light of what we have said over the last 45 minutes, what would be a couple lines of advice that you would have for Mark Zuckerberg and others who are driving Facebook, lead Facebook, and are in the spotlight at the moment? I think about the confident humility uh, point. So there's a, there's a there's kind of a balance there, and I think most of Silicon Valley 
uh, and that includes Facebook, includes Amazon, Google, all the all the top companies, and many many others that we don't talk about nearly as much. I think on the confidence side, they've been off the charts. And you know, when you're making the amount of money that they're doing, and they're recreating industry in a way that's never happened before, I understand where that comes from. But I think what um, what maybe they need to work on a bit more is the is the humility side. And I think you um, you are referencing something not uh, n- not unrelated to that point. Right, uh, right at the beginning of uh, of, of the show, uh, when you were talking about you know Zuckerberg's um, um, testimony in, in Congress mm-hmm. and his ability to convey you know the, the 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 human element, the human side of this. So I think that that's uh, that's something that um, um, and you can't fake that. You can't just kind of turn on a switch and say, well, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna act in a humble way. It's got to be part of you. You, you, you know, you, you can't you can't pretend these things. People see through it and. Bad things happen when that when that occurs. So I think that's definitely the case. And and you know, the second thing I would say real quick is around is around innovation. One of the one of the trademarks or hallmarks of Silicon Valley is that they create stuff, they break the rules, they don't worry about the rules. You look at Uber, you look at Airbnb, no one worries about the rules. They worry about it later. I think because uh, I think because of the pressure coming on them from Congress, from many other groups. Uh, that ability to create a business model that is is about I, well I don't really care about anyone else I'm just going to do this and I'll figure it out later I think that's going to become more difficult I think they're going to enter a much more difficult phase which is the phase that every other company deals with mm-hmm. which is to say you got to care about the rules you got to care about the laws you got to care about fairness you got to care about this stuff from day one uh, and I don't think they're going to get the free hall pass that they've had in the past that might require some different leadership at the very top. Last question for you here with only about a minute to go. Let's take the confidence plus humility formula. I love it myself. I think we're pretty good at helping people become more confident. We bolster their ego. We say, great job, good reinforcement, when they've done a good job, of course. How about the act, though, of teaching humility? How do, how do, we, how do we even start on that one? That's a very, very difficult last question you got for me yep. uh, because there's a lot of variation <laughs> Uh, and what we're like to start mm-hmm. with. Um, uh, I, I would say it's, uh, what was Hillary, Hillary Clinton had a great book. It takes a village way back. It does take a village. You know, every one of our uh, our success in whatever we've done, do you think we've just kind of shown up and done it all, all mm-hmm. on our own? Uh, I don't think that's true. I think the evidence is overwhelming that, in fact, we depended on lots and lots of other people. Maybe we should be talking about that. Maybe in, you know, our executive education classes, maybe in our in our in our one-on-one teaching, we should uh, we should tell the story because you know stories is how are really how things get communicated. Tell the story about how you succeeded uh, because of and through and with the help of other people and other situations, other circumstances. I think that's not a bad. Uh, I think that that would that that's would good. be a good thing to do. So yeah. the great great note to end on. Really want to thank you for the extremely interesting dialogue. Just lots of food for thought in there. If uh, listeners want to learn more about your work, they can hit Amazon, I'm sure, and probably your website at Dartmouth College. Am I right on both? Absolutely. Easy to find me. I don't play hard to get on Google. Okay. Outstanding. Thank you for joining the program. And uh, listeners, don't touch that dial after a brief break. We're going to be talking with the co-authors of a book that chronicles their time at the South Pole, a full year. Just a reminder, I'm Mike Usain. I'm with uh, Jeff Klein here. We're in the studio for Leadership in Action. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 